This is the SF Productions Podcast Network. How I Got My Wife to Read Comics Episode 616 Can a comic book collector of over 30 years get his wife to read them? Will she let him keep them? Learn more in this podcast. Let's go to the comic book lounge with Mindy and Mark. Danger Street gets its final character injection. Clark is on a long road trip. The Young Justice Society has arrived. God goes to group therapy. Joan goes crazy from perfection. Dickie does some research. Joe triumphs over militia. And free comic book day returns. This is How I Got My Wife to Read Comics for Sunday, May 14th, 2023. I'm Mark. And I'm Mindy. Just a reminder, you can go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get our feed, other SF podcasts and blogs, or subscribe with your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review somewhere. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com, like us at facebook.com slash sfppn, follow us on Twitter at sfppn, check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork. Or call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. Danger Street, Book 6 from DC Black Label by King, Fornays, and Stewart. Tom King's jam session with disparate characters from an obscure 70s anthology title continues. Lady Cop is watching over Warlord in his hospital room. He eventually wakes up and gets grilled by the cop about the whereabouts of Starman. Warlord refuses to answer any questions. Go to hell. It's a good suggestion. I have no doubt that's where he's headed eventually, but I don't think it's the first place we should start looking. Do you? Meanwhile, Abdul, one of the boy billionaires, is holed up in a hotel room with armed guards outside intended to stop Manhunter from killing him. It doesn't go well. Abdul is forced to jump out the window into a pool. He quickly finds out he's been burned by his compatriots who have frozen his accounts and shut off his phone. At one point, he's in a bank trying to resolve things. Is your mother or a parent around? Maybe I could talk to them. He goes to find Jack Ryder and is kicked out of the building. Jack sees this and talks to the Commodore, who waves it away. Abdul is forced to ask for help from the Outsiders, not the Batman team, but an earlier version of Freaks. Meanwhile, Highfather and Darkseid give Orion a second chance to resolve things, which involves the two of them releasing a deadly force they vowed they would never use. Over to the Dingbats, who have an unconscious Starman tied up. Yelling at him doesn't work, and Nonfat won't shoot him before they talk first. The boys go in the other room and play video games, while Starman wakes up and leaves the house easily. Back to Lady Cop, who checks in with the morgue. They have nothing new to provide her. Now she's at her desk at Wick's end. There must be a thread tying all this together, and then sees a name on Dr. Fate's helmet, which he assumes is a Halloween costume. The Green Team. With the addition of the Outsiders, finally all of our players have taken the stage, from princes and princesses to rogues and knights and dragons. All were now revealed, but was it too late for a true happily ever after? To be continued. Superman Lost, number three of ten, by Priest, Pagalayan, Paz, and Cox. 
Lewis is wrapping up her political story when she sees a pile of Clark's stuff, including the all-white suit and a broken piece of equipment. Cuts to Superman, somewhere in the galaxy, having been woken up by the survival equipment he received last issue. He's been flying as fast as he can, but he's too far from a yellow sun to be making much progress. The suit is helping him store energy, but it's still not enough. He argues with Marquis, the robot-slash-backpack, then continues his flight. He suddenly runs into the space dolphins that were originally introduced in the old Lobo stories. They can fly through space at faster-than-light speeds, and Clark hitches a ride. He hopes they are headed toward Earth, but any destination involving a yellow sun will work. Turns out they're flying toward a world where their calves are trapped in an energy field. Of course, Clark has to help them, so he speaks to the energy field, which lets him fly into the planet. Clark finds a huge statue of himself there. The planet is made of trillions of microorganisms, and the energy field is there to protect it. Clark convinces the planet to let the dolphins go. Unfortunately, the dolphins make a hyperspace jump, and his survival rig gets caught in their wake. He's alone again. Stargirl, The Lost Children, number six of six by Johns, Knock, and Herms. Now that Courtney has learned that the intended buyer of The Lost Children is the Our Man of the 853rd century, she realizes that she must somehow save him too. They work together in a version of the JSA. We get some exposition on this. Does John seriously think that anyone who has gotten this far doesn't already know all this info? And then we get a big fight punctuated by Courtney's inner monologue. Our man's plans to put the kids in stasis and give Childminder her youth back. Our man turns Court into an old woman before Corky Baxter blasts him and the effect is reversed. The fight continues and Courtney tells us the tale told in the TV series. Her old dad showed up to get her locket so he could hock it, then disappeared. But she will still leave her heart open. Suddenly, there's a time storm, out of which walks out an adult Corky? Turns out he's the one behind all this. He took over our man's mind. Young Corky is appalled. He would never kidnap the kids, but that's exactly what needs to happen. His elder version tells him that he's not allowed to have friends. They will turn on you. Judy Garrick rips our man's brain out of his head, and Quiz Kid pulls a device out of it before, apparently, Judy puts the brain back in place. Cloudminder is atomized by the time storm, while the older Corky is thrown back into it by the now-fixed Hour Man. Young Corky must do one more thing. He throws Wing into the time storm. Wing was taken away from his place in time, JLA number 102, where he sacrifices himself to destroy the Nebula Man. Courtney offers Wing her staff, and the whole group tries to pull him back. No one gets left behind. But Wing knows his destiny is set, and he lets go. We then get a very quick wrap-up. Our man fixes things so the kids can go to the current day and return to continuity, zapping them all into the Whitmore's front lawn. TNT is somehow still young after all this. The seven soldiers agree to reform while Courtney kicks off Young Justice Society. It will give them somewhere to go, with most of their mentors dead. Judy Garrick meets her dad again. Rip tells Corky it all happened the way it was supposed to and that Corky is not a villain. Corky, we don't make friends. We only make enemies because we have to make the hard decisions that will save history. Corky doesn't seem convinced. 
to be continued in JSA number six, which was supposed to come out this week, but is at least several months behind. Second Coming, Trinity number two from Ahoy Comics from Russell, Pace, Kirk, and Troy. We begin in heaven, where God is being inundated during a drive by his followers. He's off to Atheist Village for a meeting. Meanwhile, Sunstar co-signs on a lease for Jesus to start a project. Church of Jesus Christ Latchkey Kid. We get a reference to last issue's travails with Cranius and learn how Sunstar gets a haircut when he has invulnerable hair. He flies around an abandoned world going back through time until he gets to a point where he liked his hair. We then learn that God is at an atheist support meeting. The worst is how they always give you a God bless or praise the Lord. I mean, we're in heaven already. Can we give the God thing a break already? God agrees until there's a reference to Jesus dying. He's there because they are the only people he can really talk to. He's so tired of all the praying to him, he just wanted to hear gossip. I still don't believe in him, but he's not a bad guy, actually. God then sees what Sunstar is doing and tells him to stop. God wanted to see the microscopic worms evolve on that barren planet, but Sunstar keeps screwing it up by turning back time. God suggests the planet Trinity. It revolves around a red giant, making him powerless so he can just get a normal haircut there. God decides to hang out with Sunstar for the rest of the day, watching TV, inviting himself on a date night at an art museum. He's not impressed with mankind's art. He wanted the human race to communicate to him through art, but they just turned it commercial. God realizes that his only real success was his son, who's currently babysitting Sunstar's son. The boy climbs out the window and saves himself by flying. God, Sunstar, and his wife arrive to see Jesus and their son hugging on the lawn. Love Everlasting, number seven from Image by King, Chartier, Hollingsworth, and Cowles. Joan finds herself not at the start of a romance comic trope, as been the case until this issue, but in the aftermath. She's married to Don, a handsome man with a great job. She's got two kids who are very well behaved. They live in a lovely home. But Joan wants to know when all this will reset. She finds herself falling into the trope and just going along with it. She's at the park chatting with a fellow mom while their kids play before them. The other mom declares them the perfect family, but says she and Don do fight sometimes. One day, after a shopping trip, she dropped the kids off at their grandma's. Joan comes home and trashes the place. Don returns to find Joan having made a perfect dinner while the house is a shambles. Were they robbed? Joan doesn't see the problem. Sit down and eat your effing meatloaf. Joan reads a book while Don puts the house back together. The next day, back at the park, Joan sees a woman in the distance and runs to her. Penny! Penny Page! How do I get out? Was it Brian? Was he the one? Is this punishment for the scissors? The woman has no idea what she's talking about. Jenny falls to the ground weeping. Penny thinks, that foolish Joan, she thought she could escape love. She should have remembered what her mother says. Love is everlasting. Joan's dad tries to find out what's wrong, and Joan realizes it's been 1963 for several years now. She met Don that year, got married, bought a house, had two kids, all in that year. Don and her dad decide to have Joan committed, and that's where we leave her until the next issue. Miracle Man, The Silver Age, number five from Marvel by Gaiman and Buckingham. Dickie and Meta Maid prepare to leave the Himalayas and Tom Caxton. Jason, another traveler, has been changed by his visit and decides to stop at the base camp. 
They get a ride from Dead Love, who I thought Metamaid had already blown off and he was already gone, but whatever. Their destination is England, but we get a tour of the reformed Earth. Mountains of trash in India with kids signing up to get a place there. A man in Istanbul who's made it through a waiting list to get cancer. Nano sculpting in Budapest. A sex change virus in Brussels where you can make your choice. They arrive. Dickie and Menamade research Dickie's family. They have to go incognito to do this. She goes to Olympus to get some info. He's afraid of returning there. They track down a haven in Barnsley while locals debate who they are and go through some microfilm. They find out he was at Joyful House as a child and it's still standing despite being derelict. When they go there, Dickie appears to see ghosts or suppress memories and he goes into a stupor. In the backup story, Miracle Man is still trying to figure out what went wrong with Dickie. Perhaps that whole kissing him thing? So he goes to the archives and reads a Miracle Man comic, specifically the young Marvel Man and the young Garganza. It's pretty basic. Young Garganza captures Dickie and records his brain, assuming he can figure out how to become super. It turns out he needs a book of spells from his dad in prison, which he procures, screwing over Pop in the process. Meanwhile, Dickie escapes, getting a brain recording of a monkey and swapping it for his own. Of course, young Gargunza winds up as a chimpanzee. He reverses the spell with young Miracle Man's help and is off to prison. In the framing device, Miracle Man realizes he needs to seek out Dickie directly. Junkyard Joe number 6 of 6 by Image Mad Ghost by Johns, Frank, and Anderson. We begin in 1972 with Private Davis in a hospital bed being interviewed by a psychiatrist wearing red-tinted glasses. Muddy realizes he needs to keep quiet about the whole G.I. robot thing, and he does so. Muddy goes home. Of course, the glasses-wearing Doc is now the leader of the team tracking down Junkyard Joe. When asked by his team what to do with Joe and the escaped kids who have made their way to town, he replies, Melody Hills is a small place. We have plenty of ammunition to complete our mission. Meanwhile, Muddy is in an ambulance. He gets the medics to realize that kids are in danger and the driver changes course. Back to the kids. They have to get Joe to the VA building without anyone noticing him. So the boy turns on the town Christmas lights a day early. They find the guy at the VA who has been talking to the Pentagon. The men after them are part of the militia and on the run from the government. He goes to call for reinforcements. Unfortunately, it's too late. The team shoots the VA guy, non-fatally, and fully intend to shoot them all. We learn Glasses Guy ran the unit beta program to create the perfect soldier. Joe's experience in Vietnam scuttles that, and Glasses Guy is fired. He then tracked down and killed all the former teammates who found Joe, who escaped. Glasses Guy plans to fix Joe and take revenge on Washington. Joe flies into action, taking out most of the team and getting blown up with a grenade and surviving. Unfortunately, Glasses Guy now holds one of the girls hostage. And then the action is outside, a good time for the ambulance to pull up. The other kids run into their dad's arm while Glasses Guy orders Joe to do his duty. Muddy says, do what you came here to do, Joe. He slams into Glasses Guy, saving the girl. The town now has to deal with a robot in its midst. Muddy tries to dock down the citizens before the government arrives to collect its property. Instead, the citizens form a human shield around him and the government agents incredulously leave. Seven months later, the family and Joe are having a picnic. Muddy has started doing new Junkyard Joe strips with the older daughter now becoming his muse. 
Behind some trees, there's a flash of light. There's the robot, but it's too soon. We have to go back and fight. And we see Geiger and his two-headed dog warp out. Joe notices this. The end for now. Coming soon, Geiger Ground Zero. This past weekend was Free Comic Book Day. The industry and local comic book shops worked together on the first Saturday in May with a set of special free comics handed out with hopes that people will come back and get the habit. Some shops simply set out comics, while others, like our LCS, Pack Rat Comics, turns it into an event. The major players tend to use this event to introduce a new initiative or comic event. DC introduced Night Terrors, a bat-centric crossover involving heroic secrets. If you're interested, all you have to do is purchase 46 comic books. At $3 a piece, which is the minimum you pay for comics now, that's only $138. And that's why I've given up on mainline DC. We picked up several books. Here's one that was particularly interesting. Fish Flies, free comic book day from Image by Lemire. Jeff Lemire is one of our favorite creators. He recently joined the Substack craze, which involves an online subscription to his new work. You get to see projects in progress and some exclusives. Like many Substack creators, Lemire is posting new works there first before they come to your local comic shop. Fish Flies is his first major project using this method. It's a horror title, and like most of his work, involves a family and a small town. The Free Comic Book Day issue is the premiere of this title, formerly coming out in July. We begin with three kids walking around a small town at night. They plan to pool their money to buy something at the Quickie Mart. One of them has a $20 bill, and another asks for a buck from that. As they approach, the shop lights have attracted fish flies, a real type of insect that comes to the island once a year for a week and then die. They are nearly covering the shop and the parking lot around it. Well, I guess we're not getting popsicles. The boy with a $20 bill bets another that he won't walk through it. He replies he will for the whole $20. The response, you have to do it barefoot. He takes off his shoes and socks and begins the journey. Cut to a man waking up in the middle of a field. He's got a bad gut injury. As he runs, he's attacked by fish flies. Back to the quickie mart. The boy made it into the shop only to find a dead man on the floor and another behind the counter with a gun. There's a shot. Back to the man, now covered with flies, who runs into a barn and collapses. Cut to a girl playing in the rain. She sees a trail of dead flies going into the barn and finding a body. So are you going to keep getting that one? Oh, yeah, that sounds very interesting. Okay. I like that. Announcer bot, how can the folks find us online? Go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get the feed, other SF podcasts, and blogs. Subscribe by your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Like us at facebook.com slash sfppn. Follow us on Twitter at sfppn. Check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork. Call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. Back to you, Mark. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.